Man, so uh, we're going to do this as long as we can. Uh, you know, if, uh, if, we're able, if we're able to meet, we're going to meet. And, uh, and I hope that uh, more and more of you will join us as you feel safe and as you feel uh, comfortable here. Uh, we've got a good amount of social distancing going on here and uh, some masks and, and stuff like that. So um, we're glad that you're here and thankful that you're a part of this. Hopefully you, you've seen like some, some, some work that's been done. If you, if, you, if you were here before, you'll see that the floor is all done and that's, uh, that's incredible. And then we also have uh, uh, the building just got painted and so a, a contractor donated paint and then his time to do that as well. And so we're super thankful to uh, everybody that has is, that is pitched in with us. It's been a lot of work. Um, uh, over the last uh, few days. So we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be picking it up in verse 12. We've been walking through the book of 1 Peter for some time here, and a lot of it is about suffering. And it's about suffering on a level that you and I know nothing about, uh, basically. I'm, if, if, if you know about the history of, of that time period, I think it's like 60 uh, uh, A.D., uh, maybe later, I, I believe, um, but during that time period, it was just a, a horrific time of, uh, of suffering and persecution for uh, believers uh, in this area. And, and so Peter's writing to a bunch of churches, and he's telling them, hey, uh, listen, here's how I want you to respond to suffering. So he's been working out this argument for some time now, and he's communicating to us about what it looks like uh, to deal with suffering. And I think that there's some really uh, great gems in here for us. I'm going to read the passage and then uh, we'll, uh, we'll make some comments on that. So uh, chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. That you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because of the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let, uh, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. Now, one of the first things that I want to deal with with you is this, is what is this idea of glory? What's it, the spirit of glory and of, uh, of God, that, that kind of thing. I, I think it's really key to this passage, is that we understand what glory is and, and, and what exactly it means. It, it really means this, it means a feeling of having made it in life. A sense that all is well. A sense that I have finally arrived. Something like that. It's like, man, life is good for me. I'm feeling like, uh, like life is going well. And then I'm. So here's the thing with me is that I'm always trying to get to this sense 
to this place of glory, to this place where I feel like, man, now I've made it kind of a deal. And I've had periods of this in my life as, I, as I've gone on and on. I've had periods where, I've, where I've, I've, I've just thought, you know, if I could just get to this point, then I would have this sense of having arrived, of having made it. I grew up as somebody who just felt like I couldn't get my stuff together. I just, you know, I, I, was, I was not a good student. I uh, wasn't great with my finances. I uh, made bad choices. I didn't wear deodorant. No, I'm kidding about that. I did wear deodorant. Um, I, uh, I didn't live in a van by, down by the river either, but I, I, uh, I, I did not have my life together. And so I, I constantly had these goals in front of me that I was like, once I get to there, once I get to there, then things will be awesome. I remember thinking this way one day um, after I'd finally bought the piece of property that I wanted to buy. And, and my whole life I'd been, I'd been thinking, like, I just want to get to this point where I can, I, can, I can buy a piece of property that I love. And so I bought this piece of property and I, and I made the grass really nice and, and uh, ripped out all kinds of shrubs. It was like the worst house in the neighborhood at the time. Uh, ripped out all the, you know, the shrubs, moved all these boulders, got everything cleaned up. It was, it was amazing. In fact, my son, for Father's Day, he made me a little uh, Lego uh, ornament kind of a deal on a, a green Lego sheet. And he made my little riding lawnmower and then a tree because we have some trees. And then he put a sign that says... Matt Porter's Lawn Museum on there. So apparently, I got some work to do with my kids. They uh, think I, I'm more into my lawn than I am to them, which is true occasionally, but, uh, but <laughs> we're not, this is a confession. We'll just keep going. But in any case, so I, I get the lawn all great, and then I'm like, man, I just I feel like something's missing. And so then we get to this point where we're like, you know what, we'll, we'll remodel our house. And because the house was, was pretty rough, and so we, uh, we, we got to this point, and God was just, God blessed us immensely, and, and we were able to, uh, to pull off this remodel and just totally rip this house down to nothing. And so I, I've been a builder most of my life, and so I'd always built for everybody else. I remodeled, remodeled everybody else's houses, uh, but I was just struggling. I'd, I'd built stuff here at the church along with everybody else, and and done a lot of that stuff, but I hadn't gotten to a point where I had built for myself, and so finally I was able to build for myself, and my wife and I, I remember, we, we, we were talking about this after the fact, we got done with the house, and the house looks great, and it's, like, it's perfectly to our specifications, and, and our budget, within our budget, I should say, but to our specifications, we got it the way that we wanted it, and there was this sense that's like, it just doesn't fulfill me. It's like, um, I remember my wife and I talking one day just saying, I, I just thought that there would be this point where I got, and I, and I just thought, like, I would feel fulfilled. I would feel like it's enough. Like, this was great. Oh my gosh! We're in this house. But it, was, it, was, it wasn't that. Now, many of you would be like, you ungrateful, whatever, you know. But there, I, I was, it's like you're grateful, but at the same time, you're kind of going, but it isn't everything. It's not the thing that fulfills me. It is not the thing that ultimately made me happy. And it was so shocking. It was so shocking. See, one of the most interesting things about Christianity is that suffering and trials are not the opposite of glory. 
One of the most interesting things about Christianity is that suffering and trials are not the opposite of glory, but rather they are the path to glory. We spend our lifetimes trying to avoid suffering and trials and difficulties. We spend our lives trying to make things better, to get the latest app, to get a pay increase, to get the better car that's just a little bit, a little bit nicer. And those are great things, and I like nice things. But ultimately, our problem in this world is that our world is built around the idea that I have got to avoid suffering at all costs. But Christianity says this. Christianity says that trials and suffering are the path to glory, not the thing that we should run away from. That's what this passage is really talking about. So how can we get to a place where we see suffering and trials as the path to glory? Well, there's three things. This is, I, I do this once a year. I have three Ps uh, and three points. Other than that, I just shoot from the hip a little bit. I, you know, you, if you've been going here long enough, you know I just, I, I just open up the Bible and start preaching. But I have three Ps today, so you'll be happy. You'll be able to follow all of you uh, neat nicks out there. So, uh, so uh, the presence of suffering, the purpose of suffering, and the peace of suffering. So how, how do we get to this place? We've got to see the, the presence of suffering, the purpose of suffering, and the peace of suffering. How do we get to this place where we see suffering and trials as the path to glory? We've got to see uh, the presence of suffering first. Look at verse 12. Uh, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Stop right there. Don't be surprised at this fiery trial. What, what's a fiery trial? Tim Keller says this. A fiery trial is any situation in which obedience and trust in God will cost you something very, very dear. In our world today, uh, a fiery trial is something that's it's, it's going to cost you something, and it might cost you everything. This fiery trial is, is some great difficulty in your life that brings you to this place where you say, I doubt whether God loves me. A fiery trial is when you come to a point where you say, I'm not sure I can believe this anymore because I thought that this God was for me, but it really feels like he's against me. It's, it's, a fiery trial is when you're in the midst of a really, really difficult situation in your marriage and all you want is out. All you want is out and it's a fiery trial and, it's just, and it is pain and more pain, and more difficulty. That's a fiery trial. As I said in their day, they're dealing with suffering that our, us in America, we, we have never seen, and, and most likely will never see. They, they were dealing with horrific trials. They were dealing with horrific things, but we in America, our fiery trials are different. And what he says is this. He says, you have to expect the presence of suffering. Do not be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery trial as though something strange were happening to you. Don't be surprised at this because the truth is, is that as a Christ follower, as, as someone who's following Jesus, 
the expectation must be that I will experience trials. That that is the normative life. That if you are going to be a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are going to be in the midst of this, you are going to experience trials. Because we are in a world that is at war with us. We are in a world that is, that is wholeheartedly against us. In fact, 2 Timothy 3.12 says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But too often the persecution doesn't come because we look just like our neighbors. Christian people were accused of being hypocrites so many times. All of us have a role in that. We're accused of being hypocrites because we look just like our neighbors. There is no friction there between us because we have joined our thought process with them. We have become one with our world in many, in many ways. We are not separated. A people who are separated and holy set apart. That's what holy means, to be set apart. We lack holiness. And what happens is this, is that you and I do not see that this is an expectation. We take on the world's idea that suffering and trials should be avoided at all costs. And that I should get out of this. And that if I am experiencing suffering or trials, that ultimately, God, you must be mad at me. You must be angry with me. I must, I must not be living right. I, I must have caused some type of, of problem here. I, oh man, I haven't been in my Bible recently and so therefore God is punishing me. No, the problem is you haven't been in your Bible and so you don't see that God is gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and you don't see his grace and his mercy. That's what happens when you're not in the word. That's what happens. We take on the world's idea of what it looks like and as a result, what happens is this, is that there is no difference between us. And so we're not expecting it. We're not going down the path of life. And we're not expecting this suffering. And, and all of a sudden we get knocked off our horse and we go, what the heck, God? I was going along just fine for you. I suffer a little. I, I'm nice to people. I give. I serve. Those kinds of things. See, what's... What is going to be the ballast in your life that's going to keep you from saying, I am going to try to achieve glory in and of myself apart from suffering and apart from trials? See, that, that's our problem. That's the issue. That's the difficulty here, is that we're not expecting the trial to be there. And Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you. Don't be surprised. And you, you can look at this and you can say, you know, this is a pretty negative outlook, Pastor Matt. Like you should just, I, like just expect bad things. I, there are whole like, you know, systems of uh, the power of positive thinking and, you know, just all kinds of psych, psychological mumbo jumbo that, that is produced. Like you gotta think, the, think positively and you'll make those things happen in your life. This isn't saying that you shouldn't have positive thinking. This is saying that you should have the most positive thinking. Because the most positive thinking looks at trials and looks at difficulties not just as something 
that makes me better for tomorrow. I mean, you've heard of the, the idea of what doesn't kill you make, makes you stronger. You know, there's a song about that. We've uh, heard that phrase over and over again. There, that's an idea that says, you know, a little bit later in my life, I'm going gonna, gonna to be a better person for it. The problem with Peter's readers, <laughs> get that. yeah, nice little rhyme there. Uh, the problem with the churches that Peter's writing to, there is no hope for them. There is no hope for these people. See, we, we have the benefit of living in the United States. We have the benefit of hope. If, if we're persecuted, we, we have the hope of going to, you know, if it, if it need be, uh, the Supreme Court. You go to the police, you know, they should protect your rights. The, those types of things, we have hope in that. He is writing to people that have absolutely no hope because here are these people who are living their lives. They have friends, neighbors, relatives that are Christians, and they've seen what's happened to them in vivid detail. The emperor is still in charge. This brutal regime is still there. Their end is not going to be glorious on this side of the grave. It is going to be difficulty and pain. What if you had a mindset that didn't just hold you over until tomorrow? What if you had a mindset that could hold you over for eternity? That's what Peter's doing here. I said last week that we have the answer. Christ, I, I will boldly proclaim Christians have the answer to our, our world's problems. They will scoff at that. That is okay. We have the answer, and the answer is not to put a Band-Aid on it today. We should work for justice. We should work uh, for righteousness. We should work to ensure that all races are loved, cared about, honored, for sure. But that is to put a Band-Aid on it, essentially. Christianity brings ultimate hope. So when you expect that there is going to be suffering, and yet you know, I have the ultimate answer, not just for tomorrow, not just for a year from today, but for eternity. That's what we bring. So what is that answer? He, so there's the purpose of suffering. I just talked about the presence of suffering. We should expect it. The purpose of suffering. Look at the latter half of that, that verse. In fact, I'll read it from the beginning. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Don't be surprised that this trial has come because it's here for a purpose. It's here for a reason. It's, it, it, it matters. It is to test you or to prove you. There's this theme of your faith being proven over and over again. I don't know what your, what your life is like. I don't know about you guys who are watching on live stream. I don't know if you were in a place like I was many years ago when I felt like my world was falling apart. I finally come to God, and I finally give my life, life to him fully, and I say, okay, God, I'm yours. I'll go wherever you want me to, uh, wherever you want me to go. 
And then I, I, it was, my life was like a bad country song. My, my parents got divorced. My girlfriend of five years broke up with me. My truck probably broke down. All of that stuff. And I, and I was angry. I was mad at God. And I said, God, where the heck are you? Where are you in the midst of all of this stuff that's going on? I thought that once I begin to follow Jesus, once I begin to give my life to him in a way that I should have always done from the very beginning, I thought that things would get better, not worse. And God has a different plan for me and you. God has a different plan for your life and for my life. His plan for our lives is that, he would, that we would prove our faith once we come to faith. That glory will not be achieved on this side of heaven. Glory is not going to happen because I decided that it's going to happen. I made up my mind. Glory is future. It is later. It is eternal. It is not here and now. And we must go through this proving ground, this testing ground. He says as though something strange were happening to you. But he says rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Can you imagine telling somebody who, who will be submitted to some of the worst possible treatment available and saying to them, hey, you should just rejoice in and through that. You should just rejoice while you're dealing with this, this issue. See, that sounds crazy. The purpose of suffering is that you would rejoice that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. See, you can try to have all of your blessing now or you can take your blessing later. The whole idea of short-term pain for long-term gain. That was weird. God, did I say something wrong? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay, I'll change it, all right. Uh, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The whole purpose of this is that you would prove the faith that you have. That you would prove that, that, that what you're saying is that like ultimately and finally, I find my glory, I find my pleasure, I find everything that is good in God. And he is saying, okay, I want, I want to put that to the test. Do you really love me? Do you really want relationship with me? Some of you haven't come to faith yet. You've just been listening in to, uh, to what we're doing here at Outward Church. Uh, you, maybe you've just been watching on live stream. Maybe you're here this morning and you thought you'd check it out. Here's the thing. The invitation to Christianity is not an invitation that to having all of your problems solved and everything going away and it's just going to be happy bliss. The invitation to Christianity, to life with Jesus Christ, is an invitation to suffering. And that you would find glory in that suffering when his glory is revealed. See, what happens is this, is that the, my house, there was at least a tinge 
of me looking for my own glory that stops it. I can't get ultimate glory out of it. I can't, I can't, I can't see it as like something that's amazing because it's about my glory. It doesn't fulfill me because it's not ultimately about him. See, you and I were created to ultimately and finally give him glory, even in the midst of crazy suffering, even in the midst of suffering for the cause of Christ. Verse 14 says, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you're insulted, and there's a lot of insults being thrown around today. I mean, let's be honest. The church that's in Union County, that, uh, you know, the, the papers are repeatedly saying uh, there's 200 and I think it's 40 some odd infections in Union County because of this church. That is going to have an effect. I've seen it uh, on articles at, on the Statesman Journal, the comments. It's just all those church people, those gun-toting, right-wing evangelicals who are doing this. Not really realizing that that's bigotry in and of itself. I don't know if anybody notices that. I do. But, but the church, quite possibly, is going to be insulted more. I think it's going to be increasing as the years go on. It's going to be insulted. How do we respond in the midst of that? Is it ultimately, you are taking my glory. If it's about my glory, I react. And I say, what the heck, man? You're a bigot and a jerk, and you shouldn't be saying that. I probably wrote a post like that, or I, a comment on <laughs> I, I So I feel that way too, okay. I, I didn't say it just like that, but it was, it was more uh, passive-aggressive, but... In any case, <laughs> should be glad it wasn't aggressive-aggressive. That, that would have been a little worse. But what do we do when we are insulted for the name of Christ? Peter says, you are blessed. And why are you blessed? It's because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. In the moment where you're being insulted, uh, high school, junior high students, this is a big time for you when, you when we do finally go back to school. As you're walking in your faith and you want so badly not to be insulted. You want so badly not to, not to feel abnormal and so you'll do whatever you can to avoid being insulted or being shamed. In fact, it says in the next verse, yeah, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Like, don't be ashamed in the midst of that because you are blessed. And this whole idea of the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. What is that? I think one commentator said, it is God's smile of approval that is on you. Can you sense that with me for just a second? Expecting the insult. That as I say, no, I can't. No, I won't do that. Or yes, I am a Christian. And the insult comes. It's like, keep blessing me. Give me more blessings. You got another insult for me? Boom, come on. Give me a blessing. 
Christians, do we feel that way? I don't. I want to punch somebody, all right? I, I, dude, I, I got to tell you, I'm, so, I'm convicted about this passage. I am. Because, man, I do not like to take insults. I don't know about you. I just don't like it. I want to hurt somebody. Look at what he says. He says, uh, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. There's this story from this book I've mentioned several times that just goes along so well with our passage uh, from this book, Dominion, by Tom Holland. He's talking about this, this prisoner who was arrested in 177 A.D., he replied to every question put to him by his interrogators, I am a Christian. I am a Christian. I am a Christian. He just, that's, just, that's just how he would answer. And it's really kind of crazy. We might say, well, that's really kind of weird and kind of abnormal to point yourself out like that, that kind of a thing. But he, he goes on to say, rather than tell, tell them his name, or where he had been born, or whether he were slave or free, he had instead repeatedly insisted that he had no status save that of a follower of Christ. Such stubbornness to his judges was baffling as well as infuriating. The refusal of Christians to identify themselves as belonging to one of the familiar peoples of the earth, the Romans, or the Greeks, or the Jews, branded them as rootless just as bandits and runaways were. Their delight in posing as aliens, as transients, made a boast out of what should properly have been a cause of shame. To them, a homeland is a foreign country, and a foreign country is a homeland. And yet, for all that, Christians did believe they belonged to a common ethnos, a people. The bonds of their shared identity spanned the world and reached back across the generations. When the martyrs of Lyon and Vienne embraced death for the sake of their Lord, they knew themselves bound in fellowship with others who had suffered a similar fate. This is an atheist who's writing this. He's at least a former atheist. I think he's still an atheist. He looks at this and he says, it was so striking what these Christians did in the face of absolute persecution, to be identified with, with, with this Christian religion, which is not any one of these local gods, which is not anything that anybody else is really involved with, and to say, I'm not Roman, I'm not Jewish, I'm not a part of one of these other peoples, I am a Christian. What does Peter say here? He says, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. He says, I am a Christian. And it's spoken over his life. And he allows the insults to come. And she allows the, the disdain to take place. As they say, I am first and foremost a Christian. I am nothing else. I am a Christian. I am someone who gives glory to God through the suffering that I experience. I give 
glory to God. And in and through that, I receive glory. He says in verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? For Christians, this is as bad as it gets. This is, we're going through our judgment. We're proving our faith. We don't get saved because we prove our our faith enough. We are saved and in so doing, we prove that we are saved. It's an assurance to us that, that we are his. God knows that we are his, but it's an assurance to us and it's an assurance to other people that we are willing to suffer for the cause of Christ, that we are willing to bear the reproach of Christ. And somehow it says this in here, which is kind of crazy. It's time for judgment to start with the household of God. And what it's saying is this, is that this judgment, it it is discerning whether you have real faith or not. It's discerning and it is showing you where is your faith. Because I went through things in my life where I just said, hey God, see you later. It happened to me so many times. Forget it. I'm doing whatever I want. Crisis would come. I would walk away and I'd say, forget it. I'm walking away from God. And then I'd come to this point where I'd be miserable and I'd be like, man, God, I'm so sorry. Next time, I don't want to walk away. This is what God was doing for me. God was saying, yes, I know. We're on a training program. We're on a training program and we are discerning. We are judging. Matt, where do your allegiances lie? Where do you ultimately find glory? Men, The reason why our families break down, the reason why things don't go the way uh, that they should go in our homes is often times because we as the leader of our home are searching for glory in anything other than truly suffering for those under our care truly dealing with the trials of life and being willing to bear the reproach of Christ and saying, I am a Christian. Hey, do you want to go to a strip club? I am a Christian. Hey, do you want to, you you know, set aside your family and take this great job because it comes with a, uh, a pay increase? I am a Christian. Hey, do you want to just kind of live like a, you know, a weak Christian, a man that doesn't lead his home, and just kind of sits around, let your wife do everything, that kind of thing? I am a Christian. It's bearing the reproach of Christ. It's saying, I'm identified with him, and my glory is not found in anything else but him. And the only time that we see this The only time we can come to that point is when we're truly judged. I don't know if you can feel the judgment that a trial brings to your life. It is judging. Where is the gold? Remember, it talks about in the first part of 1 Peter here, talking about refined by fire. 
It's a fiery trial, and it is refining you. It is making you into the man, the woman that God has called you to be. The last part is this, the peace of suffering. Verse 19, therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Why does that bring peace? It brings peace because it's ultimately saying my soul belongs to the creator of the universe. It's a recognition that he created all things. It's a recognition that he's ultimately and finally in control. It's a recognition that I do not have what it takes to reach glory, to experience real glory. I do not have the ability to make that happen in my life. It's ultimately saying, like, even in the midst of my suffering, like, this is God's will. See, that's kind of an imposing thought, that this would be God's will, that I would go through suffering. It, you you want to see your faith tested? Many of us have grown up with really bad theology that says all of the bad stuff's from Satan, all the good stuff's from God. And some of you, I mean, you're going to be like, oh, no, you didn't. You know, like, that's, that's, I don't, I don't want to hear that. But I, I just got to tell you, it says it right here. There, let those who suffer according to God's will. Your suffering could be the result of God's will when you're doing right. Not when you're doing evil, when you're doing righteousness. When you are acting in holiness. Your suffering is God's will in that moment. Your suffering is God's will. Why does God use trials and suffering in this way? Why does he do that? Why does God do that? C.S. Lewis says in The Problem of Pain, he says, the human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. The human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. And pain is not only immediately recognizable evil, but evil impossible to ignore. We can rest contentedly in our sins and in our stupidities. And anyone who has watched gluttons shoveling down the most exquisite foods as if they didn't know what they were even eating will admit that we can ignore even pleasure. Why doesn't God use pleasure? Because you just sit there like a glutton and just go, thanks God, thanks God, whatever that was. Why doesn't God use, use my house to say, love you, there's glory, because I don't see it. Because I don't see it. But pain insists on being attended to. And this is the famous quote here. 
God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It is his megaphone to wake you and I up to the reality that we are not it, that we are not the answer to glory, that we are not the answer to everything that we have ever desired, that we are not the ones that can provide that, that he is the only one. And the beauty of this God that we entrust our souls to is that he suffered for us. He is the God who has suffered for his people. No other God has suffered for his people. This God has suffered for you and for me. This God went to a cross. This God decided and chose to give himself for you. And when he went to the cross, what he did was he said, this is the way of glory. This is how glory comes into this world. As he bled out on the cross, he gave himself up in those moments. And he decided that this is how glory would truly and finally be found in this world. It is through faith in him. It is through trusting in him. And so if you're wondering here this morning, what, what is it? What does it look like for me to finally say, okay, I want to find my glory in this, in this God. I don't want to be searching after it anymore because I see the f- futility of that. You must first see that all of that glory seeking has simply just been sin against God. It's finding your ultimate and final pleasure in anything but the true and the living God. It's looking for an idol in a house or in a car or in a person or in a job or in a relationship. And you must see your sin not just as some mistakes, not just as a couple things that have gone wrong, but as wholeheartedly against the creator of the universe. But then you must see that the creator of the universe went to a cross for you. The creator of the universe died for you. The creator of the universe gave everything for you. And his invitation to you is not to say that now that you believe you're gonna have your best life now, his invitation to you is that you're gonna have your best life later and you're gonna experience the smile of God today and the things that you give up in the trials, the fiery trials that you submit your life to as you trust in him. I invite you to give your life to Jesus Christ this morning. And we would love to hear from you. You can go online and you can go to outwardchurch.com forward slash connect. And we'd love to connect with you and tell you more about what that relationship looks like. We'd love to talk with you after the service, but let's partake of communion here. We have folks at home that are gonna be participating as well. And so if you have your communion cup with you, I wanna invite you to participate in this with us. It's a little tricky to get that thing open. Uh, (laughs) It's not the easiest thing in the world. It's a delicious wafer, though. And uh, so... (laughs) Uh, that's a complete lie, but um, 
but I'm just going to ask the, the guys to just play softly behind me here. Um, and would you bow your heads with me and, and just, would you think about this for a minute? Let's think about all the ways that we've sought our own glory. Let's think about all of the ways that we have desired to try to have something other than the suffering and the trials. And how we've, we've just desired other things. Maybe you know of something just recently where you'd say, man, I see the sin in my life. All of my self-glorification, all of my glory seeking. And Jesus wants you to know this morning, I just, I just want you to concentrate on Jesus. Jesus wants you to know that he gave himself for that sin. He gave it up for you. He gave up his life so that you could have life. Take a moment and confess your sin and thank Jesus for going to the cross. Just do that right now by yourself. Jesus, we thank you for your body that was broken for us. Let's partake of the bread. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your precious blood that was poured out for many at the cross. Lord, we thank you that you gave up everything for us, that we could be in glory with you. Let's partake of the, the juice. Thank you, Jesus, for going to the cross. We praise you and we thank you for what you've done. It's in your name we pray. Amen.